a podcast about amazing people from an incredible state. Amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead. Back with another episode of Amazing Arizonans and my friends, the Hoopers are here, Steve and Linda. We've talked once before about some of the amazing stories and cases that you've worked on, and I want to get into a couple more of them. But I'm, I'm so intrigued, I think, because I know you both personally. Um, which of you retired first? I did. And why? Why? Um, a, a couple of things. I had no plans to retire when I retired. It was um, my, my father got ill. <clears throat> we lived in Maryland. My dad was in Oregon. My mom, <clears throat> my mom had already passed away. And so he was by himself in the state. And uh, he got sick. And I, I just didn't want the same thing to happen again that happened with my mom. And so uh, he had to have surgery. I went out for that and thought I'd be back in two weeks, and he didn't recover as quickly as I hoped, and I just said, you know what, I'm done. The other thing that played big into it was, <clears throat> at that time, I was the assistant special agent in charge, and so I handled all of the um, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and intelligence cases, and those are the top, at the time, were the top three priorities in the FBI, and they were all on my plate, and I kept telling my boss, only one of those can be my number one. And so two of them should go to the other ASACs, but he didn't see it that way. So I had all three top priority. And so wow. there wasn't a night that went by that I didn't get woken up in the middle of the night when they're doing the um, re- the report for the president the, um, with all the terrorism cases and everything. I'd get called every single night for information. They couldn't call during the day. They always called at night. And so it just... It got old. There's no weekends. There's you really you're always tethered. Did you do you or did you miss it? And when if you did after leaving? Um, I definitely miss the people that I work with. I can't say enough about the agents that I worked with throughout my career. Stellar people, fun people. Um, I'm still in contact with a lot of them. I, I do miss them. Uh, most of those people are retired now as well. And <clears throat> as far as uh, my favorite part of the Bureau was when I, I worked criminal cases. I worked criminal cases most of my career. And I would say working gang homicides in the District of Columbia when it was the murder capital of the country. It was me and 26 guys on a task force. And uh, it, I just had a great time. The, it's it was and probably still is for the most part a male dominated field. But you rose to a very high rank. How were you received by the people you worked with, the men you worked with, um, firearms instructor, the other things you did? Did you always feel like they accepted you um, very well? Uh, yeah, I there were when I went through the academy. There were um, six women in our class, and uh, I think only I guess three of us ended up staying. Um, unfortunately, one one passed away before she retired. So two of us actually stayed the, uh, the 20 years and retired. Um, but we trained with the men. It was it wasn't any different. I didn't ever have any problems with that until I got into management. That's when the walls started coming up. Really? Yeah. It, was that part of the reason why it, you said a multitude of reasons? Is that part of the reason why you were? either glad to be gone or left when you did? No, no, because I had my bosses in the field office. They were great. Um, I liked all the people that I worked with. 
Uh, I never had any issues with that. They, uh, that's how I got promoted. Um, was in the field, and it's unusual the way I got promoted. I got promoted from a supervisor to assistant special agent in charge in the same office I was in. And especially at that time, that didn't really happen. And so I was very fortunate that that happened, and um, <clears throat> and it was, it's because of my boss at the time. So it was more at the headquarters level. Huh. I, I just remember um, one incident where we had a Title III going. That's a, it's a wiretap, and it was a criminal case. I was handling this for another guy who was out of town. It was his area, and it was out of Nevada, <clears throat> and it had to do with some bombings. And so the field office was going to go up on um, some, some phones in Nevada, and when that happens, it's, like a, it's a dual process. The FBI sends all of their paperwork to FBI headquarters. At the same time, the U.S. Attorney's Office sends all of theirs to Department of Justice. And then it goes up, straight up. And um, when it gets to the top, they decide whether they think you have enough probable cause. And if they decide that everything, all the um, I's are dotted, T's are crossed, goes back to the field office, then they present it to a judge. And and the judge decides whether you're going to get the Title III or not. But it has to go through this process at both headquarters. And so I was trying to get this paperwork approved. And um, I, I was the only woman in the violent crime section at headquarters. And I always dressed in business clothes and heels and all that and they don't have they had linoleum floors and I'd walk up and down that hall and you could hear my heels going and finally one of the guys in the other unit who I used to work with who was on the gang squad with me came out and he goes what are you doing how many times are you gonna I said I'm trying to get this paperwork approved I can't I can't get it approved and he goes what are you talking about? I said, for the Title Three, And he looks at me, says the guy's name, who was the section chief. I said, yeah. He goes, he won't approve it. I go, I haven't, I haven't heard anything. He, and he said, um, I said, why? And he goes, he never even reads mine. I said, are you kidding? He goes, no. He, as soon as it gets up there, he signs off on him, and it goes back. He goes, he actually reads your... I said, evidently. Wow. So it was just... I, I mean, it. it didn't even occur to me that that was an issue. I just thought it was this way for everyone. And there were other incidents like that where the guys would tell me, no, that's not, that's not the way it works for me. But everybody else you worked with in the field, you worked with well. Yeah. And, it, and, and all the people that were at the level I right. was at at headquarters, they, right. they, I mean, they all treated me well. That's how I found this stuff out. Wow. So, yeah. That's incredible. And when you worked together, we've talked about this before, but when you guys worked in the same area, was it ever difficult to work with each other? Not like difficult, like you didn't like each other, yeah. but was it hard <laughs> to work together? Um, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. No, I don't think so. And people I think always it, marvel at that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, because I, yeah, I would think it would yeah. be difficult one or the other. Like yeah. one would well, uh, worry about the other. or You know what I mean? It yeah. would interfere one maybe our, with you doing your job. One of our favorite stories is... Uh, um, doing a raid at a uh, a uh, high high dra- drug trafficking area in Washington D.C. and it was three story 
garden apartments, if you mm-hmm. know that you know yep. what those are in Florida, but uh, you don't see those out here too much. But garden apartments, so family apartments, and um, it was her gang homicide squad uh, going in to do search warrants and arrests, and and the SWAT team went in and hit the place first and cleared the places and made them safe. So I was part of the SWAT operation, so we were in cleared it. So we were secure in the parking lot. And we we're standing there, and I look up, and three stories up, standing on a windowsill. Reaching up into a gutter and a drain pipe you? Yeah. is her. And I'm going, what the heck is she doing? And so she's reaching up into this drain pipe and around this gutter. And everything, and she starts pulling out bags of So cocaine. you figured out where he was hiding the drugs. It was a fluke, <clears throat> honestly. <laughs> I can't deny that. <laughs> we had searched this place. And all, all the guys in my squad were all in there. We're searching. You know that the drugs are there. And, um, again, it's a three-level apartment. This apartment was huge. And it's in the winter, and it's as hot. It's, like, tropical in there. You've got on your vest. You've got on sweatshirts and stuff because it's freezing outside. Hot air rises. I'm on the third floor. So we kind of... Everybody had searched. We didn't find anything. And we kind of um, met and said, okay, let's start all over again because we know it's here. We, d- we have to find it. So went back up to the third floor where I started. This other guy was with me. We flipped the mattress in this room. We started putting, searching all the drawers, putting stuff on the mattress. And it's so hot, I am ready to pass out. And so I walked over to the window, and I opened the window up, and I'm, like, trying to get air. And when I'm standing there... All of a sudden, it occurred to me. I just, I said, I know where it is. I said, hold on to me. And so he sticks his hands in the back (laughs) of my pants. And um, I jump up into this windowsill and reach around and start pulling out bags of crack cocaine from from the rain gutter. And you were downstairs. I'm down in the parking lot going, what? (laughs) I want to talk with you about an Arizona case that I you've told so many stories to me over the years I did not know that you were a part of the Jared Loeffner case mm. can you explain your role in that and what that was like because that was such a I remember where I was when I found out about it it was a tragedy that carried on for so long here um can you, and for people that don't know, Jared Loeffner was the shooter of Gar- uh, former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords and so many others a federal judge and a little girl were murdered and um what was your role in that? How did that happen? Well, uh, when I got transferred out here, it was a promotional transfer, and one of the programs I oversaw was the Critical Incident Response Program, which is in every field office. And so I was the head of you know SWAT and evidence response, hazmat, uh, bomb techs, so forth and so on. And uh, uh, so, obviously... Um, I was called that day. I remember, obviously, where I was. I sat in the backyard and and got the phone call and uh, jumped in my car. And so um, I was one of the on-scene commanders as the head of the Critical Incident Response Program. And uh, so just overseeing all the operations down there and the craziness that was going on at the time. And then, uh, uh, but that was, was, you know, my role and... um, you know, we, we, we worked through that case over a, a one-week period of identifying who it was. Obviously, he was caught at the scene. Uh, interesting Arizona story is uh, how he was stopped. Um, he 
he shot, sadly shot all those people, and then he dropped his magazine, was going to reload, and this woman was there, and she grabbed him. And then another guy had come out of the Safeway and uh, uh, had his gun on, a citizen, and he jumped on him and put the gun to his head, and they, they caught him. But the woman, when we interviewed the woman, and we said, why, why would you jump on this guy? And she goes, well, he dropped his magazine, and uh, so I knew he was unloaded. And I said, only in Arizona. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, knowledge of guns and how guns work and so forth. And who knows how many lives she saved by jumping on this guy. Did you ever have an opportunity to talk with Jared Loeffner? No. No. The in- but so, you worked the background on it. Yeah. So the Critical Incident Response Program uh, is a uh, an organized and designed um, incident response system designated at the federal level all the way down to state and local. And so there's an investigative team, an intelligence team, a medical team, and you you set all these up. So there was an investigative team that did all of that. Um, And I know we talked about this earlier, but it was another one of those cases where he was known to be, by many people, to be pretty critically violently mentally ill. I know there's a big difference. Not everybody that has a mental illness is violent, but he was known to be violent. She had received letters from him, so he was on radar. So, But it's interesting. We we always say that uh, the the number one um, the number one uh, uh, threat, number one enemy to safety is denial. And she didn't have any security set up. This isn't putting it on her, but it's just circumstances that lead to these things. Is she went out there on the stage to speak, and she didn't. People always immediately think, well, why wasn't the Secret Service? Well, the Secret Service doesn't protect Congress people. They only protect the president, vice president, and family members. Well, who protects the people from Congress? Capitol Police, if they request a security detail. John McCain always, always had a, a state police, a, a Capitol Police officer with him because he used to contact us at the field office when uh, McCain would come back from Washington. I would see you him. You probably know him. Yeah, I did. I had, would have him in studio quite a bit. We had a really good personal relationship. But when he would come in my studio, we used to marvel at the fact that he didn't have anybody with him. He had a girl named Michelle that traveled with him, and he would say she was his head of security. So I just don't know if he felt safe in the studio with us. I don't know. Yeah. Right? But um, he used to joke that she was his head of security. and. And uh, it but, went, yeah, that's interesting because we used to travel other places. Yeah. He had the detail, but he yeah he would have at least one with him. But on that particular day in 2011, uh, uh, Congresswoman Giffords, she didn't have. I don't. I don't even think there was police security. It's there. not a. She it's was, the, well, the Capitol Police. It's not a gigantic police force, right. so yeah. they're not all entitled to that. It's like McCain would have been because he sure. was high yeah. up. So he had. But you can ask that. for it. You can ask for yeah. it, but like. But it's it's not what automatic. The, what they're doing now is a lot of them are, are paying for their own security. Yeah. And, well, actually, we're paying for it see, through see, our wanna, tax money. Um, let's talk about there's one of the stories that you've told me. It's one of my favorite stories is about somebody. Was it was it a tank? Was he had to do with tank? What was it? I, refresh my memory of this guy. Yeah. I just remember so, you bowled with the guy. That was my favorite part of the story yeah. when you were working so on this the goes, This goes back to the Cold War. Right. So people it was long enough ago that a lot of people 
are around now, all my students, you know, that's like a historical time sure. period, you know. It might might as well be the Civil War. You're living history. <laughs> yeah. You are living history. But in the 80s, we were in the Bureau, and in that the Cold War was still going on, and, and we had squads that targeted uh, or were tasked with um, – uh, defending, so I won't get into all of counterintelligence, but is offense first defense, right? Sure. And the CIA is our offensive team, and the FBI is the defensive team. And the bad guys are over here trying to get, steal our stuff, and we go over there and try to steal their stuff. So um, uh, this is back when the KGB, the GRU, and the different elements of KGB, Line X, Line P, and so forth, all existed. Well, in Washington, D.C. and in New York, you had squads that handled all the different elements of KGB and the GRU. The Soviet GRU is the version, their military version of their intelligence. So it's their military intelligence. Okay. It's the one that's still left. KGB's gone now, and it's SVR and, and uh, all, so forth. But the, Soviet, the GRU still exists. It's still the Russian military intelligence. Okay. So it's the oldest intelligence program in their in their kit bag. And so uh, I was on the GRU squad and we got information again um, that uh, there was a known Soviet GRU case officer, Soviet GRU spy, uh, intelligence officer that started to frequent a bowling alley in Arlington, Virginia. So that, on the surface, doesn't mean a lot other than the fact, because people think the Pentagon's in Washington, D.C. The general public does. Well, where's the Pentagon? In Virginia. Arlington, Virginia, where this bowling alley is. So that, you know, kind of raises a red flag, right? So we got to figure out why he's going to this bowling alley. Well, I wasn't part of this. I wasn't the case agent. I was just on the squad, but I was new on the squad. And uh, I think I had three or four years in the Bureau at this time. And uh, so one of the agents came up to me and said, have I got a deal for you? And uh, he said, we, we, one of my subjects, uh, one of my targets is spending time at this bowling alley. We want to find out why. So I always tell my students, because I teach counterintelligence, I always tell them <clears throat> the beauty of counterintelligence is there's really no rules because they're foreign intelligence officers. So they're not subject to any of our, you know, our constitution, right. our rules. Our, so you can kind of do anything you want. So you kind of sit back and go, how can we get near this guy? How can we figure this out? We don't have to, we don't have to worry about any, violating anyone's rights or anything. And so... Uh, uh, the simple way was for me to walk into the bowling alley and at least eyeball them. And so I went in and looked around, and and I realized, okay, the speculation was the reason he's going to this bowling alley is he's here to recruit assets and gets recruit spies, right? So if he can find somebody in the bowling alley that maybe works at the Pentagon or— Exactly. Okay. All right. And so when I went in on this Thursday night— Sure enough, the entire bowling alley, for the most part, was Pentagon bowling leagues. <laughs> well, if he's doing his due diligence as a Soviet spy over here operational, this is a target-rich environment. All he has to do is stumble across one guy that's willing to 
sell secrets. So why not hang out there? And so we speculate that's what he was doing. Well, the best way for him to target someone, if he's trying to target someone in the bowling league, I guess I got to join the bowling league. So I joined the Pentagon Bowling League. Now, did anybody that you were bowling with or in that bowling alley know what you were up to? One person. Okay. One person. All right. Yeah. And uh, um, so every Thursday night, and then I would use, you know, and this is where... Did you go watch him bowl? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I did get Bowler of the Week one. <laughs> you did. You brought home I a little, nice little trophy. I got a trophy. And nice. Yeah. And his undercover um, name. Yeah. So, um, but it was, but this is, again, this is what I teach up at the school and my counterintelligence class. And uh, I use several books that are written by former FBI agents, one in particular. Please tell me you still have the trophy. Do I still have it? I don't know. It's, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> That'd be a great I, little prop for school. Yeah, yeah, it would be. You're right. Um, but the uh, uh, and this is what I teach kids is this is when you, your skill sets are tested because not everybody uh, can be an undercover. We we got we have friends that went deep cover. Mm-hmm. I mean, like disappear sure. for two years. What? Dobson, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah Jay Dobbins. David Dobbins. Dobbins. Yeah. Jay Dobbins. We talk about him. Yeah. And uh, but. You know, obviously, there's dozens of guys in the FBI, guys and gals, that they disappear for a length of time. That's deep cover. That's a unique ability. And the FBI's undercover school. Well, anybody who's seen the movie Donnie Brasco. Yeah, that's it. That's a perfect example. Yeah, I even called him one night to get some advice on an undercover we were doing. Talking about Joe Pistone. Yeah, Joe Pistone. Okay. And because uh, the guy I was working with that night is a good friend of Linda and I, he was undercover with the mob. And uh, I had him do a, a one-night role with me. And uh, he was incredible. He's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And, then, uh, and then we had to make a decision after that. So we picked up the phone and called Joe Pistone and said, this is what we got. What do you think? And he advised us. But... In this bowling alley thing, the best thing to do was go in there, and this is what I tell the students how to. Uh, um, to uh, this is where you learn your skill sets. Are you able to stand in front of someone and lie and act like you're somebody else and get them to believe you? Do you have that skill set and and be able to handle it? And that's basic undercover. Um, that's why his stories are so good. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So. But I could this sit is, and there's to three levels from you too. There's three levels, right? There's deep cover, there's light cover, and then there's cameo. So the, you know, you need a girlfriend for the night because you keep talking about her, and so they want to meet her, and so you bring in a undercover for one night, and, and that's it. Right. Light cover is you're not living that life, but you're playing a role. Uh, and that's for what you were doing. So I was doing light cover. So I played the role as uh, I was a uh, uh, general dynamics tank manager, civilian employee at General Dynamics, working on the M1 Abrams, M1A1 Abrams tank, the newest model. And uh, because this, I, I, I was able to determine, I, I, built, I was able to build a relationship with this Soviet GRU officer just by being in the bowling alley. I slowly got to know him, um, became friends with them. So when you say slowly, what kind of a time period is there where there's a basic friendship? It pro- probably took me two months to get him uh, to sit down and have a beer and have a conversation with me. And uh, 
and then we just kind of just started talking to each other and talking about life and talking about life in Russia and life in the United States and and so forth and uh, to see if and we were trying to see one of two things if he because there's always two options is is he going to try to recruit me or is he looking maybe the other reason he was going there is he's looking to find someone that he can say I want to come to your side yeah. I want to come work for you he was looking for an opportunity. So um, you never know where it's going to lead. It might lead to that. And I would ask him about, you know, the United States. Did he like it? And so just Does he and, test you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at some point, he's got to, does it get to, if you are too willing, is it, do they almost oh, think yeah. that it's this is too good to be true? Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. You, that's the one thing. You, you do got to play a little hard to get, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he, he asked me one time, he goes, Steve, what would you do with a million dollars? And I said, I'd invest it and make another million. Yeah. And he goes, yes, you are a true capitalist, <laughs> you know. And uh, <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, because the United States is the best place in the world. Are you kidding me? So they want, that was his test, right? He wanted to see, am I going to defend the United States? Or is I going to, in three weeks after meeting him, going, hey, can I come to Russia? Yeah. You know, so, um, and vice versa. He defended the Soviet Union. We have everything we want. We don't ask for nothing. You know, the government gives us everything, and he just he would go on and on about that. And uh, we don't need want for anything over there. And then I'd say, if you could live anywhere, where would you live? And he says, Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> so much for they give us everything we want in the Soviet Union, and we want for nothing. But did Except you then figure out pretty quickly that he wasn't trying to sell you anything? He was looking, if he was quickly? doing anything, well, when these conversations, if he was defending Russia the way he was. Um, no, I, I don't think you can definitively say okay. that. I think that as time went on, um, he was, I think, I remember we determined that he was fishing. He was looking for someone to recruit. Did he suspect I was, uh, you know, a dangle is yeah. the term? Um, maybe. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, I, I, I was in the bowling league, and I met him at the bowling alley. I, I fit all the criteria that we believe he was there. He was playing a video game every Thursday night. That's what he was doing. Which one? It was, uh, it was, um, uh, it was a World War II Oh really? Uh, video game with a joystick yeah. back in the day, and uh, but he was the best, and all the teenagers would stand around and watch him because he's the only one who could get to the last screen, and the last screen, <laughs> the last screen, the Russian plane took shot down the German plane, and that's what he always loved. Oh, okay. the last plane. <laughs> that's amazing. So, um, but he was the best. He was the top scorer on that video game. So, um, but, you know, we believe he was there for that. And then it finally, it, it finally ended when um, uh, I listened to a recording of a known operation that we weren't involved in. And they had me listen to the recording, and I said, there's no question that's him. They go, okay, good to know. So we believe he was operating somebody else, and the odds of him then operating me uh, – were slim, so we shut down that portion of the Did case. you ever record any of your conversations with him? No. No. So you but so you but you had to report what those conversations oh, were. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was debriefed after every What every eventually Friday. happened with him? 
he probably finished up his tour and went back to Russia. And so now he's, he's, in he's retired he in Singapore. He wasn't arrested? No, no, no. So well, you never... don't, they don't get arrested, right? They, they get deported. So okay. They don't, they, it, the, the people they recruit get arrested. The Americans they recruit See, I didn't get arrested. Know that. I didn't know that if you were in this country spying that you wouldn't be Mm-mm. held in prison, but you just send them back. Send them back. Yeah. So they they kind of – and then they get fired or whatever back there because they've failed in their mission. But uh, That's I'm probably the best but, they can hope for. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, I would imagine. Back then, yeah. But, so uh, when you see – I guess this is a question for both of you then. When you see how things are going now – I don't want to get political – but when you see what's going on with Russia and, and Ukraine, but where the Russians have held – well, Brittany Griner from, from Arizona, where she was arrested on, for criminal charges but held for a very long time. Now there's a journalist they're saying is a spy – Based on experience, is that maybe them just kind of messing with Americans, or is there a chance that that could have been a cover and that guy's cover got blown? Nah. Well, you never know with the with with that stuff. I mean, we're, we're not going to know. What people don't understand, though, is that people immediately see, when they see Russia or one of these other countries take uh, – legal action, law enforcement action, whatever you want to call it, we immediately connect it to how we live in the United States. And we right. go, well, they can't do that. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, they can. Yeah. This is, that's not America. And so even the Brittany Griner thing, you know, um, is as small scale as that might have been with a, uh, you know, with um, the, vape uh, pen. the vape pen and yeah. oil and, you know. <clears throat> In the United States, we'd just go, eh, you know, get rid of that stuff, right? We see the cops just say, we're taking this from you, but don't do this again. Right. But over there, it, is it because she's American? Yeah, probably. But it is their laws. And high-profile American, Yeah, high-profile American. It's their law. They have the ability to do it. You know, it... it but the majority of Americans are going to sit back and go... They can't do that. And yeah. and yes, they can. In any of these countries, yes, they can. They operate by their own laws. Okay, so before we close this out, I asked you about missing being in, in, in the Bureau. But for you, now you're a professor. Embry-Riddle has a school that trains people in intelligence and security. And so you literally are training the next generation of those officers that will go, whether it's corporate security or right. whatever it's going to be. Yeah. Um, how fulfilling is it with these young people? Yeah. Uh, uh, right before, it was just last week, I had one student, and she's been going back and forth with the Secret Service, and you know, and they emailed her and said, we're discontinuing with you. And then she comes back, and she comes to me, and I said, that doesn't make sense. And so she said, well, I'm sending another email. I'm going to call this guy you gave me, and blah, blah, blah. And then so I went back and forth, back and forth, and she just notified me last week before classes ended that she got the word she's been put on track for Secret Service Special Agent. And as soon as I hear that, I go... That's what this is all about. I mean, she got through this whole tough time. I said, you made it the toughest journey 
that any of the students before she goes, I know, everything I did seemed to get messed up. The guy had the wrong email one time. He was trying to send her emails and so forth. And so, um, but to answer your question, that's, that's the best thing I get out of it is when I get notified by a student that they've received their conditional job offer from the FBI. I've got three going to the FBI this year, and I've got two going to the Secret Service. Wow. And... Uh, it, that's when they get those notifications that they're they've been hired. That's what it is. That's that's what it's all about. There has been a lot, of, and I don't want. To, I'm going to ask the question, and if you don't want to answer, you don't have to answer, obviously. But um, there's been so much talk about weaponizing federal agencies in recent in the last few years. That's been a big conversation. I don't want to ask your opinion on that part of it as much as. Do you still believe that the role of the FBI is as critical now as it's ever been, especially post 9-11 and the retasking of the agency? Uh, absolutely. I think it's actually more critical now than it's ever been. Um, and it, some of the things that I see on the news, it, it's heartbreaking to me, an agency that I spent 21 years with, and to see some of the things that are alleged to have happened, um, it, it's tough. But is, I have I have complete confidence in the agents in the field. But isn't it true, and for people that don't know, law enforcement usually keeps track of law enforcement after they leave the in that profession, but there is no fraternity that keeps track of an agency like a former FBI agents. Absolutely. You are truly connected still with what happens oh, because yeah. of yeah. the legacy, correct? Right, right. So when you say it's heartbreaking, it's it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That 21 years of my life went to that. But do you think that the agency or the bureau is still able to fulfill its mission? Yes, I do. I think th- I think the agency is. And again, it's it's based on the work that the agents are doing in the field. And um, sometimes you just have to disregard headquarters. That's Hello. that's where it's politicized, and that's where I think some I, of the bad decisions have come from. Right. I, I think I think operating as an FBI agent in the environment in Washington D.C. and I won't just say headquarters. Right. Washington D.C. Right now, with the environment that's there now, I would think, and we spent a lot of years in the Washington field office and at headquarters. Um, it would be very difficult in Washington, D.C. Remember, there's 56 field offices. Fifty-five of them, I think, are running like clockwork, like they always have, doing really good work, uh, whether it's New York or Phoenix or Seattle. They're doing good work. They're working FBI federal cases like they always have. The Joint Terrorism Task Forces are doing what they're doing and, uh, and continue to. But it, I would think it's hard, difficult to work in Washington, D.C. as any federal agent right now with the environment that's going I was on. Saying, it's, not, it's not about one political party or the other, but it is about the vitriolic at- atmosphere. Is that right or not? I, I I don't know. I'd I'd take it a step further. I I think it's. I, I always said if I wrote a book, I'd call it expectations. Uh, we live in a world where expectations change all the time, right? So pre nine eleven, the FBI was expected to show up and investigate 
a terrorist attack and find out who did it and arrest the people who did it. Post 9-11, the FBI is expected to prevent the next terrorist attack. That if they were, even if they had, someone attacked and we were able to identify who did it, arrest them, that wouldn't be good enough. It would be, how did this happen? How? What in? What an intelligence failure! Yeah. What was missed? What was missed? Right. So the expectation changed. I don't know. It bothers me what the expectations of the Department of Justice, the White House, and the D.C. in general, what the expectations of the FBI. That that in D.C. What do they expect from the FBI? Because the things they're doing. I don't think fit what the general public expect the, expects the FBI to be doing. And that's why there's a lot of consternation when they do some of this stuff. It somehow always comes back to headquarters and the Washington field office that are doing stuff that people are going, why is the FBI doing that? But it's that it, it also is, it's also tied into the Department of Justice. And I think most of that stuff comes from the Department of Justice. And you can go back in time, even back to the um, Clinton administration when he had Janet Reno as his attorney general. And I didn't necessarily agree with her politically, but I she is one person I had a lot of respect for. Because if if she thought something should be done, then that's what she did. It didn't matter what the president said. And she um, countered Bill Clinton on several occasions where he wanted her to, to do a certain thing and she would not do it and did something else. She, she stood up for herself. And I think it was after that administration, really, when it started to get more political at the Department of Justice. And if the Department of Justice, it's supposed to be apolitical. And once it's politicized at the Department of Justice, everything just flows down. They're over the FBI. They can tell the FBI, no, this is what you're going to do. And you have to do it. And so... And I think there needs to be the role, the, problem. Of the, the, the role of the director of the FBI needs to be that filter between the Department of Justice and the field offices. That's what headquarters right. is for. And I don't know that that filter is really good right now. I think that Department of Justice dictates what the FBI is going to do rather than the FBI doing what the expectation of the what the people of the country expect them to do and then involving DOJ as needed. It, well, it's what's in, what's interesting too and most people don't realize this are the US attorney's offices. People think well the US attorney works for the Department of Justice. No, no. they don't. They're political appointees. They serve at the um, pleasure of the president. They were appointed by the president. And so they don't work for the Department of Justice. So if the Department of Justice wants to tell them, you have to enforce these laws, that U.S. attorney can tell them, go pound sand, we're not going to do that here. But what started happening over the years, and this never used to happen, but it's um, in the last 20 years, it's happened a lot, is that they start, as soon as the... Um, if the government changes political parties, then the new political party that's coming in 
gets rid of all the U.S. attorneys that were appointed by the last political party. So now they have 100 percent U.S. attorneys that are appointed by either the Republicans or the Democrats. It doesn't matter which one it is. They both do that now. And so there's really it's not the balance that it should be. And, and not the independents. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not. Mm-hmm. But there's, they still don't work for the Department of Justice. But now, at least they're on your team. If, if, right. If, it's if you're a, yeah, right. that political party. Right. And so a lot of times um, they don't have to give you marching orders because you already know what the marching orders are. So last question for both of you then, um, or either of you. Um, would the average American be surprised at the number of things that don't happen because of the work the FBI does? We only hear about an incident when it happens. Right. right. Someone attempts to do something or something pulls off an attack. Would we be surprised at the number of things that you are able to stop from happening? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's so How? many. There's. It, it, the JTTFs across the country are doing so much work at prevention, and you can't prove a negative. And they could probably couldn't even tell you, well, we know we stopped this. They just know they're, they're ahead of uh, the actions uh, of those who want to harm us. And uh, um, to the tune of, uh, over all these years, probably hundreds of cases. Are there any... Because I know there's things you can't talk about or don't want to talk about. Are there any close calls that you can think of that when you were with the Bureau that you were able to, with the JTTF, stop some of these attacks post 9-11 where they were stopped, where if they had been successful? I'm thinking. If you don't want to talk, you don't have to. I'm just. Well, one of the subjects of one of my investigations is still in Gitmo. Oh, wow. Yeah. There aren't very many people that are still there. He's yeah. still there. And uh, that was just a super interesting case. Um, and it, again, it, like Steve's cases, I spent most of my time in the criminal division. It's simple things for simple people. That's me. I like mowing the lawn because I can see what I've accomplished. Okay. okay? Fair enough. And... Um, and so then after, after the uh, sniper investigation, no good deed goes unpunished, and my boss asked me to take over the JTTF, which is on the, counter-intel- on the intelligence side. Totally different rules, totally different laws, everything's different. And that's what made me nervous. I, I don't know those. I've never worked under them. And I really didn't want to go, but I told him I would do whatever he wanted me to do. Just don't set me up to fail. Give me enough time so I can learn the rules. And this was one of the first cases that came my way. And um, it it was pretty interesting. And this um, kid from Baltimore was involved. And he's the one that's still in Gitmo. And the person that helped him out, you can Google her name, Afia Siddiqui. And uh, she was one of the top female al-Qaeda people. She was a doctor, a neurosurgeon in, uh, in Baltimore. And um, she, yeah. she was there. We set up uh, um, a camera in a, in a post office of a location where you go and just pick up your mail. And this is where the, the criminal versus the uh, 
um, intelligence mind comes in, and that's what my boss told me. I said, I, I don't know anything about I can't figure out what they do. I don't know why they do some things, and I can't figure out why they're not doing something else. And he goes, exactly. He said, I was a drug supervisor. I know how you think, and that's why I want you over there. And so they had this, um, like, a, it's called a mail cover, where we can take pictures of mail. We have to get a uh, um judicial process to do this but you can take pictures of mail that's delivered to your box you still get the mail Mm -hmm. and we don't open it up we just see what's on the outside of the envelope to see what what information you're getting so they had this mail cover all set up when i got to the squad um it was on the other squad we had two jttf squads and uh i said okay so they go was in somebody picked up the mail okay who and they're like, well, we don't know. Well, if you're going to do this, why don't you have a camera so you can see who comes in the right. post office, right. a pole camera? To, and they said, oh, I don't know. We, we've never done that. Because they don't, that's my drug mind right. thinking. And so I said, oh, no, we're going to do that. Of course, it's a Friday afternoon. They go, oh, we, we can't do that. I mean, yeah, we can. And so... I made a few phone calls, and we got a camera installed that night to be able to photograph who it was that was coming and picking up this mail. And it was her, Afia Siddiqui. And um, it had to do with this kid was in, over in Pakistan, and his um, visa had expired, and he was trying to get back into the United States. You, you can't apply like that. And so um, we had all this information. Actually, he was the one that... Um, picked up the money from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed oh, wow. for the for the bombing um, that was in where was it in um, I can't think Bali wow. the Bali bombing and uh, <clears throat> his family owned gas stations and uh, just to see that like the types of things they were doing and I don't know if they do this anymore or not but it, you know, you, when you go to the gas station and the big tanker truck comes and they yeah. stick the and they fill up the yep. tanks down. Well, all of those have locks on them on the top, mm-hmm. but they never locked them. Nobody did, because what are you going to do? Well, what, what they were going to do is they were going to take that off and put explosive, throw explosives down there and blow up the whole gas station. And they tried it a couple times in Pakistan first to make sure it worked, and then they were going to bring that show over here. Wow. And you were able to thwart that yeah. from happening. Yeah. We, we, he was the first, after KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed yep. was, this guy was the next guy arrested. Wow. That's how high up. These are the story. I mean, I could, we could do this forever. We should just, again, we should do what we were going to do before, just do a podcast about these stories. I appreciate you telling them um, and sharing the, because I I think that this is the behind the scenes stuff that people want to know and we always wonder about, but it's pretty incredible, both of your careers and, and, and thanks for sharing some more time and I hope you'll come back and do it again. It's been Anytime, Mike. All right. It's another edition and uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Discover more amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead at KTAR.com, the KTAR News app, or wherever you get your podcasts.